0: My name's Todd Fraser. With me today is Professor John Myberg, who needs little introduction to most intensivists worldwide. A leading critical care researcher, renowned clinician, and current president of the Australasian College of Intensive Care Medicine, John spends his off time dabbling in catecholamines, a subject in which he has completed his PhD. He has over 100 publications to his name in the literature worldwide, including some truly practice changing papers released in conjunction with the ANSIX CTG. I could continue to list his achievements and honours, but we'd run out of time for the podcast. So, suffice to say, John is a luminary in the ICU world, and it's my great pleasure to have him on the podcast today. Welcome, John.
1: Thanks very much. Uh, Todd?
0: I guess the obvious place to start is what, what should we be able to expect from inotropes? If, if there was an ideal inotrope, what would it be like?
1: Well, Todd, it's a, it's a good question to start off with the, uh, the discussion. Um, I mean, My view of, of this topic really is that it, uh, the use of inotropes or vasopressors and therein is a, a topic in its own right as to what we call these things really forms part of the, the elixir, the basis of what we do in the ICU apart from the administration of oxygen and fluids and mechanical ventilation, uh, the use of drugs to support the circulation is a fundamental part of our practice. And I guess uh, uh, we use them widely and I think in, you know, practice in Australia certainly has in many ways um, led the world in the way it is applied. Uh, in many parts of the world in you know, the last century, pressors or antropes were used primarily as rescue therapy to rescue patients who were in established uh, uh, shock. But over the years in Australia, I think primarily because of our, our clinical focus, we use onotropes or vasopressors to defend or maintain normal, normal um, uh, circulation. And that, and that's the most difference in practice, which I think is finally becoming the trend worldwide is that the use of onotropes or vasopressors are used early on in practice primarily to defend and maintain the circulation rather than waiting until a person becomes shot and then rescue them from what looks like uh, imminent death. In answer to your question about what's the ideal on a drug, well, of course, there isn't one. Um, uh, we're talking about a, a drug which uh, is primarily used to increase cardiac performance, in other words, to improve the essence of the circulation, which I guess in many physicians would regard as maintaining a, an appropriate miniaturial pressure. It's also got to preserve intrinsic cardiac function, in other words, the use of on of drugs that suppresses catecholamines, what we call them, shouldn't really harm the heart as such, either by direct effect or even by prolonged exposure resulting in desensitisation um, of the response to the drugs by the heart. Most importantly, I think these drugs should be used to uh, be titrated against a clinically relevant endpoint. And I think we'll discuss it later on, but there isn't one universal endpoint that really summarizes the complexity of the circulation. So we need something that can be titrated easily to achieve an easy definable endpoint. Obviously, non toxic, and they've got to be cheap and cost effective because, as I mentioned earlier on, on, these drugs are used widely across the world, in, often in the first line and uh, forms basis of our practice, and we can't really expect people in low- and middle-income countries to use highly expensive drugs to, for a basic part of our practice. So those are some of the opening comments I have about what the ideal trap is.
0: It seems that um, definitive guidelines on the use of inotropes have been very hard to develop over the last few years, largely because of the dearth of high-quality outcome-based literature. Is, is that evidence base improving, do you think, and what's the current status of the literature?
1: Again, an excellent question, Todd. Um, in fact, the evidence base for onotropes or by the personal catecholamians, and perhaps we should just refer to them as for the rest of the discussion, um, really goes back many, many years. Um, when I got a PhD in, in catecholamine physiology, you know, last century, um, I went back to the Nobel Prize laureates who had been awarded Nobel Prizes in this area, and no less than six Nobel Prizes have been awarded, defining the, in the evolution, the theology the responses of the adrenergic system in humans, and that really has formed the basis of very sound uh, physiological data for the effects of these drugs on the circulation, both in physiology and in the pain circulation. What's happened over the last subsequent 50 years really has, as you say, been a dearth of high quality outcome clinical literature, mainly because of the reasons I mentioned earlier on that these drugs are, I think, poorly understood in terms of their physiological effects. And in many ways, the, the whole um, debate got somewhat hijacked, and I use that term carefully, by the quest to develop a synthetic catecholamine um, to become the, the drug du jour in, in, uh, in clinical practice. So whilst there was very good you know, basic science literature supporting or defining the role of catecholamines in health and illness, um, the clinical area was, was lagged behind and heavily influenced by the manufacturers primarily of synthetic catecholamines, and that's why we saw the rural explosion of, of, of studies looking at the effects of uh, these synthetic catecholamines, particularly the peteragnes, the, um, the last etc., in, in the 80s and 90s. But pleasingly to say that really since the turn of the century since 2000, there are now a number of higher-quality clinical trials uh, investigator-initiated looking at the comparisons of the traditional or the endogenous catecholamines, adrenaline and noradrenaline, either in isolation or in combination with Dibetamine, and looking looking at the effect of these drugs in quite large populations of critical patients on clinically relevant patient-centred outcomes. And really since uh, the last five years, um, uh, at least four big trials done, one in Australia led by our group here, uh, and two in France and one in Europe have now produced a body of quite good uh, evidence, looking at how these drugs work, both in clinical practice and defining some of the effects of these drugs um, on outcomes more more clearly. And as a consequence, now the latest revision of the Cochrane uh, systematic review includes these trials, and for the first time has put together a sensitivity analysis looking at the higher quality trials and making some recommendations which are already quite clinically, clinically meaningful. So I think that finally, after many, many years, uh, we're now getting quite good clinically-based trials uh, looking at the effects of these drugs in clinical practice, and there appears to be finally some translation of the early pioneering physiological that work and then the effects of these drugs in clinical practice.
0: So obviously there's an intuitive use for these uh, inotropic agents that improving the circulation would seem to improve outcomes. Why do you think that it is that it's been so hard to find evidence of benefit for inotropes?
1: Again, a good question, Todd. Um, um, Improving focused outcomes is often difficult in large clinical trials as we have seen with the uh, anti-clinical trials group studies. Um, and I guess part of this relates to the well, finding a clinically meaningful uh, persistent outcome that really reflects the, the totality of the circulation, apart from mortality. One of these that's emerged from some of the clinical trials has been um, resolution of shock. Uh, there are some mythological challenges in the this, but it appears that uh, the, the newer trials, particularly the SOAP study from, from, from Europe and our CAT study from Australia, uh, look quite closely at this. And what they showed was that um, time for resolution of shock uh, between the catecholamines, in fact, uh, was um, uh, largely uh, equivalent. But what emerged from these trials was perhaps some some evidence that the uh, the non-clinical effects, if you like, uh, of these of these three drugs uh, produce some some quite important clinical differences. And of these, um, use of dopamine now has is in, now no increasingly question because of increasing side effect profile. Specifically, from the SOAP study, um, the use of dopamine in comparison to noadrenaline showed that uh, there was a, a clinically significant increase in the incidence of um, tachyarrhythmias uh, and other side effects, um, which perhaps does mitigate against its use. Fortunately, in Australia, we have not been using of dopamine for many, many years. That does mean certainly was um, a, a first-line drug and recommended by many guidelines as a first-line drug uh, for the treatment of shock. And these guidelines, I think, will need to be revised in accordance with these larger trials. Comparing uh, adrenaline and noradrenaline or adrenaline to noradrenaline plus abutamine, it appears that the, the time to shock resolution between these two drugs or combinations of these Uh, is no difference, and perhaps there is a suggestion that the time to resolution of shock is is perhaps short of adrenaline, although not significant. But there is no doubt that the use of adrenaline is associated with the development of um, significant uh, metabolic abnormalities, in particular the generation of a lactatemia, uh, tachycardia, and hyperglycemia. Uh, This has resulted in many clinicians shying away from adrenaline, particularly in North America, uh, because of these effects. But I think what's important now is that these additional side effects are not associated with either increased mortality or worsening organ failures and, in fact, reflect the metabolic effects that adrenaline produce under periods of stress. And these, in fact, may have uh, benefits to the patient. Of course, this question gets, gets asked all the time, and uh, if a patient is at and this is the concern to the clinician, perhaps the use of adrenaline should be avoided until this does is resolved. Uh, that said, there really is no major difference between adrenaline and noradrenaline, and I think this is the reason why, uh, certainly in Australia and New Zealand, and I think increasingly across the world, noradrenaline is being used as the first and often sole drug uh, to defend pressure and treat shock in
0: patients. You'll have to forgive my ignorance in this area, John, but I was, it, it strikes me that um, one of the major issues with the literature is the difficulty in determining an endpoint to titrate therapy against. And until that um, marker of, of adequate tissue perfusion is widely accepted, the trials are going to be very difficult to, to do. What are your thoughts on this?
1: Again, Todd, another excellent question, and it's one that's, that's really bedeviled the, 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 the literature for many, many years. I think part of that really comes back to how we understand and how we interpret the circulation. Um, for many years, uh, clinicians and researchers have regarded the circulation as defined by Ohm's law, which is basically that the generation of a pressure gradient is proportional to the flow or the current uh, and the resistance of the circuit. Uh, and this has resulted in people using pressure, uh, cardiac output, and systemic gas resistance. That's the three variables which we could measure. The reality, of course, is that that is not true at all. The, the, the human circulation is not anything like the circulation or the circuitry through a edge, edge of current. And circulation is basically the balance between the afferent circulation from the heart generating the pressure and the efferent circulation generated by the infoturn. And these two uh, circulations are, are constantly imbalanced. These are the principles defined by Garton many, many years ago and slowly um, the depreciation of this is, is emerging. Well, in fact, we can easily access the afferent circulation by measuring pressure. Perhaps we can measure uh, cardiac output in various ways, but that really only represents half half the, uh, the circulation, and some index of inch return uh, is, is where the, the difficulty arises. Of course, central venous pressure, or CDP, is a very poor index of global inch return, but probably the only one that we have other um, modalities um, looking at mesothermic pressure the index are emerging, but these need to be taken into context of the overall circulation. But what has become apparent over the last few years in fact that the predominant vascular effect of the of catecholamines on the circulation is actually on the on the efferent circulation. In other words, catecholamines act as by the primarily by increasing turn by in- inducing a stress volume, in other words, squeezing the capacitance vessels to increase the return to the heart, rather than by arteriolar as a constriction, by increasing or decreasing the systemic vascular resistance. Now, this sort of complex physiology is important because it does really make redundant or questionable some of the, the traditional endpoints that people have used, both in clinical practice and in research. So, in the absence of a, an easy, easy measurement of not being returned. The best measurement probably is the generating pressure from the afferent circulation, uh, with the assumption that these two circulations are in balance. And that's why I think most of the, the, the neuroclinical trials have focused on on immunitarial uh, pressure within a range applicable to the patient's uh, clinical state, is what's is what recommended. The use of metabolic indices such as VO2 and oxygen consumption and all of those other things really have been shown to be quite misleading. And in fact, are very poor surrogate so indices of cardiac output. Um, and I guess until um, until some combined integrated index of turn and effort-circulation is obtained, we have to rely primarily on uh, the miniature of pressure as the main uh, endpoint for for trials. Uh, but this requires a, lot, a great deal of clinical interpretation in
0: the context of the passion that we're treating. There's a concept that's been gathering some momentum over the last few years, and that's the disconnection of the macrocirculation from the microcirculation. Do you think it's reasonable to continue to use markers of macroscop- uh, sorry, macrocirculation as, as the endpoints to our therapy?
1: right. I mean, the the macrocirculation really is a a blunt assessment of convective flow to the tissues. Uh, The microcirculation looks at uh, um, utilisation and implementation of substrates and there's a huge disconnect between those two variables, as you point out. All we're really doing is is focusing on the convective or macrocirculatory delivery, Uh, but little um, comes back in in terms of how that is utilised. Unfortunately, many of the indices that we have available uh, to look at microcirculatory effect are, um, are limited. And again, I think the subject of some misinterpretation, in particular lactate, which uh, is not necessarily a, a good index of microcirculatory function. Um, so I guess we, there is no real, uh, at this point in time, uh, easily usable assessment of that and I think we just need to have some circumspection when we target macro uh, indices um, with the aim, perhaps, of improving micro uh, circulatory flows. As you know, there are, there are many other factors that influence uh, micro circulatory function apart from bulk delivery of, of, of blood to the tissues, and including um, diffusive distances, uh, rheology, cellular uptake and even genetic uptake of all these things, and it's a far cry from what we're doing
0: when we're to, to that measure. Is, is there a best onotrope available? And I, I guess you obviously need to um, further discriminate that in terms of pathological states too. Is there a best onotrope for sepsis, for cardiogenic shock, perhaps for pulmonary hypertension?
1: Well, I guess the answer is no, uh, in, in the short answer. But I think the way that... that uh, my own thoughts and the thoughts of people doing a certain uh, area of thinking nowadays, which is quite gratifying, as it goes back to my earlier comments about about the um, understanding of, of how catecholines work in sickness and in health, is that the use of traps in current practice is primarily to augment failing endogenous systems. In other words, um, our ability to fight or fly uh, as human beings um, is often maxed out, and the ability of the human for the patient to mount an adequate endogenous synthetic response to stress um, may need external augmentation through the use of external infusions of catecholamines. So what we're doing, in fact, is, is augmenting an inadequate or failing endogenous system. And the two most, most uh, probably chemicals for that uh, use the noradrenaline, which is the predominant uh, acting in catecholamine across all vascular beds, um, augmented by the use of adrenaline. Now, of course, that's not the end of the equation. If people cannot respond to endogenous symptoms or cannot respond to exogenous administration of catecholamines, this may well reflect a uh, failing post-response and the patient becomes overwhelmed by the, 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 the stressor. So I think that's the way we should think about how we use catecholamines, really as uh, augmentation therapy rather than rescue therapy. The question you asked, which is important, is there, a, is there a fundamental difference in the different shock states, sepsis and collagenic in particular? Well, I think the SOAP study, which has been recently published, shows for the first time, in fact, that there is really a very difference. Uh, in fact, they looked at the trial primarily in sepsis shock patients, and in fact, the, um, the, the benefit was shown uh, more so in sepsis and collagenic shock with more adrenaline compared to dopamine. And to my knowledge, this is the first time that, a large scale trial has shown a potential benefit of the use of a catecholamine in cardiogenic shock, which hitherto um, has been regarded very much the domain of beta such as Davidamine. Um So I think when you ask the question, Todd, Todd really relates that uh, using catecholamines to defend or maintain the phone circulation uh, is probably germane to all shock states with equal effectiveness. However, there's always going to be enormous inter- and intra-individual uh, variability during the response of these drugs by the patient. And therefore, clinicians need to be aware of this. And if you aren't getting an aren't getting an adequate response to the drug with which you're most familiar, then it is reasonable to change to to another drug so and see whether that, there's a better response. And I would always caution against cocktails of multiple drugs, um, but I think it's, it's worth while recognising that some patients, and we've all seen this in our clinical practice, may not get an adequate response to the use of an adrenaline, perhaps, but the or, or swapping over to adrenaline often may result in an improvement or vice versa. So I think we need to recognise that there is enormous individual uh, variability in responses and that um, and we uh, uh, need to be very clinically focused at the response and how we, and how, 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 how we measure that.
0: There's two, um, there's two that we haven't spoken about. We've talked a lot about um, catecholamines so far in the interview. Uh, the first of the alternatives is, of course, milrinone. I was just wondering what your thoughts are on the place of that.
1: Um, well, these, these drugs have been around for a long time, as you know. Um, the, the parent compound is was, was, was milrinone. Um, and these drugs certainly have a, a theoretical advantage over the catecholamines. Mainly by acting quite quite powerfully on non adrenergic systems. They act primarily through the inhibition of phosphodiesterase drugs and increase the use of calcium in um, the uh, myocardium and vascular chip to produce modest uh, myotrophy and vasodilation and act, as I mentioned, uh, in, uh, away from uh, adren- adrenergic stimulation. And these drugs, in theory at may. The catecholamine sparing, which is often a good thing in um, in our patients, um, I think one of the things that, that perhaps is understated in the use of these drugs is in fact their effect on lucidrafty, which is uh, active glassthoracic inflammation. These drugs may in fact be, be quite useful in patients with um, stiff ventricles or poor ventricular compliance, often characterised by diastolic failure and in association with high impedance, such as pulmonary hypertension. And if you think about that, that really applies to selective patients uh, in the pericardiac surgical um, uh, situation who have got, um, you know, high arthro-trap obstructions or or stenotic lesions and associated, um, left a dyslexic failure. And I think those of us who work in the cardiac area have seen often quite um, profound improvements in these particular patients. The problem with these drugs, of course, is that they're all long-acting. They can't be uh, titrated in short effects and they often can produce quite profound hypertension uh, as a consequence of what I would have got as pathological based dilatation in, uh, in certain patients. And uh, apart from the patients i described, the sort of high impedance, dysbentrical, cardiothetical patients, uh, the use of these drugs in patients with sepsis really is, uh, is totally unproven. And uh, um, I, would, uh, I would think that they have a very really limited role uh, in the sort of cardiac area. Uh, in a highly monitored environment. But I will certainly uh, advise caution of the use of these drugs. And that applies to even some end-downs in passions outside
0: uh, the cardiac area. Concern over the potential side effects of some of these agents, um, such as the, the increase in oxygen consumption associated with their use and the increase of intracellular calcium, uh, together with the, the obvious paradox of uh, outpatient management of congestive heart failure uh, with beta-blocker uh, therapy, uh, it has sort of led to the development of, of another alternative, hasn't it, with levosimendan, and that stands out as the next, bi- next big thing. Um, what do you see as, as happening with this, uh, this drug into the future?
1: And, uh, again, has, has, has some of the some of the advantages of the uh, phosphodiesterase inhibitors, uh, different mechanism, of course, but the, had, it has it has um, potential benefit, perhaps, in the non-agenetic um, stimulation or improvement in, in cardiac function. Um, again, many of the concerns that I have about the PDE3 inhibitors relate to liraglutide in terms of its uh, non profitability and its accumulation, and, uh, and in fact may, may well. Um, generate quite profound hypertension in vulnerable patients that invariably require the use of the to so-called rescue them, which defeats the purpose of giving these drugs uh, in the first place. In terms of high-quality clinical trials, um, there are none to date, and the only trials that have been done are in patients with acute decompensated cardiac failure outside the ICU uh, compared to Dividamine. Uh, this is uh, Alex Mavaz's trials uh, a few years ago, uh, and it again, showed no difference in Reductions in, in markers of cardiac failure, and this is BMP for a is one of them. Uh, but until there's a, there's a lifestyle trial, you know, looking at a resolution of shock in acute of patients, and I, I, I guess be compared to the catecholamines, again, I would, urge, I, would, I would advise caution in the use of these drugs. I guess to be slightly um, uh, not cynical with is that these drugs are enormously expensive. Uh, and you, I have some concerns that uh, the use of Mendanes of this, genera- this century are very much like the vitamins of last century, with the imperative to develop a potent or non potent um, synthetic catecholamine or synthetic beta-pressor to be used in shock patients without necessarily benefit. I don't think that the uh, complications that are attributed to the catecholamines are as stated as what they are. I think many of the of the metabolic tolerances we see. Or a natural consequence of the drugs, but as I mentioned earlier on, none of these, the um, the larger trials can demonstrate an attributable complication rate to the catecholamines per se. It may well, may well be a reflection of the of the failing response in by the patient to these drugs. So I think limetamine is an exciting drug. It needs to be validated in large scale clinical trials. Um, and again, I would, I would. Uh, I would Probably urge, urge caution the use in, um, in non-cardiac patients, as I mentioned
0: earlier. Finally, I'd like to turn to the future, John. What do you think um, the future is? Firstly, in terms of where do you see the the next research going? Um, do you think that we have got the answers that we need, or do we need further high-quality trials? And finally, uh, what other um, what other options are there out on the horizon? Well,
1: I think the the um, the horizon in terms of new active drugs is fairly is, is small. Uh, there aren't that many that, that many uh, new compounds that are being studied. I think for a lot, many of the reasons that you mentioned earlier on, in, in terms of, of of getting high-quality trials, defining a defining a passionate outcome apart from surrogates, and of course the the cost and the uh, the research development costs that are required to get these drugs to the ground. That doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't be looking for these things, and I think one of the uh, areas I would be interested in would be, as with all our trials, some kind of gene mapping, looking at the response of, of patients to cataclylamines, if, if possible. I think a lot of the uh, the, uh, the gene mapping, looking at patients who are vulnerable to desensitisation um, of of catecholamines of either endogenously or exogenously, would be interesting and whether or not um, gene gene therapy uh, may in fact be a way of, of improving um, outcomes in patients. Um, this is all very, very, very theoretical, but goes back to the original basic science responses of why patients become so overwhelmed by external factors and, in fact, the, perhaps the augmentation or, of um, passive circulations using infusions of adrenaline is very primitive. And perhaps going to the real, the real essence of the problem um, that may be... Um, An area of future development, but a long way from current practice. In terms of other compounds, um, I guess uh, I think some of the theories or benefits uh, offered by the phosphodiesterase inhibitors and the membrane fertilizers um, have some role, I think. I think it would be good to to develop a short acting, tetradical phosphodiesterase inhibitor type patient, um, uh, type drug. Uh, but I'm not aware of any compound like that in the, uh, in the, in the future. Um, so I think we're, we're a, bit, a bit like fluids. We're, we're left with, our, with the current stock of drugs and fluids that we have available to date, and they're all very cheap and off-patent. Uh, any new drugs that come to the market um, need to be tested carefully, um, with all, these, all due consideration to that. and There needs to be an a, a acute awareness of the cost that these drugs incur, uh, not only to the uh, to the patients and the health system systems, but also to the researchers, because ultimately we make sure that these drugs actually improve outcomes um, that are applicable across the world, not necessarily to high-income countries.
0: John, this has been a wonderful opportunity for us to talk to one of the world's experts in this uh, ubiquitous uh, topic for intensive care. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure to If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not visit our websites, Critique and CritNurse. Our websites are leading providers of critical care education resources. Our sites contain podcasts, video presentations and modules, searchable libraries and image databases, and much, much more. Critique can be found at www.crit-iq.com and CritNurse at www.crit-nurse.com. Alternatively, visit our podcast page on the iTunes site and give us a high five.